Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Pick Up the Blitz, your premier news source for all things NFL football. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Nick Bellotto and Justin Heyer. And boys, I just want to start off by asking, how are you both doing during this sort of unprecedented quarantine time? Are you guys feeling the cabin fever quite yet? Not quite yet. Uh, you know, it's so far so good. I feel like things are, you know, I'm still busy enough to, to not feel bored yet. And the best part about it is that I've got this extra time on my hands to finally, you know, do these, these NFL reports that I've been wanting to do for years. So this is, this is actually perfect for me. Yeah, it's not so much cabin fever for me. It's more just a lack of all things sports. Um, you know, even though NFL is my, my first love, I'm definitely missing NBA and NHL right now. There's nothing to watch on, on TV, and uh, I'm starting to run out of things on Netflix. So. It's crazy. And you know what? It's, um, it's a weird time because on the one hand, we have no sports going on, right? But on the other, there's still a plethora of NFL news to go through, which is great for us, right? So Amen. we're going to touch on two big topics today, one being free agency in the NFL and the other being the NFL draft coming up uh, very soon. So I want to start with the free agency topic, and we're going to start with Nick here. And what I want to touch on with both of you gentlemen is some of the best moves in free agency that we've seen and some of the worst. So, Nick, I want to start with you. What do you think are some of the best moves you've seen in free agency this year? Well, there, there's been a lot. Uh, you know, the, this was one of the more active free agent periods, I think, in the last couple of years. I don't remember one but that was this um, – you know, guns are blazing for all these different teams that are out there. Uh, I def, you know, there are definitely some winners, and I think one of them uh, actually took place before free agency really kicked off, right? And it's not even the the signing of players; it was the DeAndre Hopkins deal. Um, I think that Arizona trading away David Johnson and and a second round pick to get DeAndre Hopkins is a steal by any means of it, right? He is one of the top receivers, if not the top receiver in the NFL. Uh, he he literally just not dropped the football. Uh, he is a player that is reliable, consistent, um, and for Kyler Murray, that's that is a Christmas gift come very very early. He is going that the Arizona Cardinals are going to um, they're going to be so much more improved this year just by adding Hopkins and and uh, and you know re-signing Kenyon Drake, of course, uh, also important. But bringing in Hopkins on a on a deal like that is a steal by all accounts. Yeah, I mean, I think Bill O'Brien at this point deserves some sort of award for the number of blunders an executive can make in the span of a short, you know, a short amount of time and still be employed. I mean, you know, letting, uh, you know, trading to Javian Clowney and um, trading Dodger Hopkins for this absurd, um, absurdly low level of compensation um, is just, I feel bad for all Houston Texans fans and for Deshaun Watson, especially, but you're right. That Arizona offense with Christian Kirk and Larry Fitzgerald, Kenyon Drake and Kyler Murray. And now you add Hopkins to that mix is going to be scaring defensive coordinators all over the place. What do we think about Todd Gurley with the Falcons? Do we like that match? Do we think that that's something that they've improved upon in the running back position? How do we feel about that? I liked it. I think, I think it all depends on um, whether or not he can stay healthy, whether or not he can actually play some football. Um, it's a, it's a low, a low, you know, number for, for a guy of Gur- of Gurley's potential, right? He's a, he's a, one of those top running backs in the league, if he can be on the field and to, to sign him for a year, six mil, that's, if you ask me, I think that's a solid gamble by the Falcons. I don't think they really lose anything. If he ends up 
not playing well, um, it is what it is. And you move on. And uh, listen, at the end of the day, the Falcons probably aren't going to be ultra competitive in, in that division, considering New Orleans and the, and the Buccaneers uh, making the moves they've made over the offseason. But I think I think it's a low-risk gamble. If he, if he comes in and he plays every game or 14 games and he's a stud, totally worth it. He can revitalize his career. If not, I don't see them really losing a whole lot from it. Yeah, but you know, it, it it by no means fixes the running back that the running back problem, right? Because that injury, that injury caveat is is a big deal. I mean, they don't have Devonta Freeman anymore. So if you if you lose Todd Gurley to injury at some point in the season, which based on how you know his knees have been, is is a strong likelihood. I mean, who do you have filling that role? Like Edo Smith or Brian Hill? It's not it's not a very um, it's not a very exciting running back depth chart behind Gurley. So I think that despite it's an, uh, the fact that it's an exciting signing, it does not fix the running back problems for sure. Yeah, but again, the, the Todd Gurley's not – at the end of the day, it brings, it brings something to attract people to watch the Falcons games. They, it, if he's on the field, there's no questioning his ability. But, and, and, but listen, bringing Gurley or bringing in some other running back, that's not going to make the difference for the Falcons, right? The Falcons need to do a lot of other things if they're going to be competitive in that division. Gurley, you know, I, I see no problem with Gurley as an individual signing and bringing him in and trying for him to produce what he was able to do in the early parts of his career uh, with, with the Rams. I, you know, this running back is – is one of those positions that you really nowadays can kind of be very fluid with who's playing back there. And if you can get eight, 10, 12 games at a girly at a top level, that makes them more competitive. Is that going to put the Falcons over, over the, the threshold and get them into the playoff conversation? I don't think so, but I don't think they could have brought in any running back that would have brought them into that, into that conversation. Yeah. My just initial reaction is that that $6 million signing is going to be $6 million down the drain by the time the season all said and done, whether it's the fact that they could have put it elsewhere or brought it over to next season, especially since, you know, you agree that he's not going to bring them over the top. I think that'll be $6 million uh, that they wish they could have gotten back later. I think it's much more low risk than that. I don't see it being as, as devastating to their cap structure. I don't see it being uh, devastating to their team in terms of uh, could he use that money elsewhere. I, I think, I think it's a totally fine. I think it's for Gurley uh, for his injury history, a safe, a safe deal. Obviously, listen, he, I could be totally proven wrong uh, and he plays one game and he's out for the rest of the year. But I, I think, I don't think there's anything wrong because I don't think it really hurts the Falcons. All right, Justin, I want to transition over to you, but stay in the NFC South. You and I were talking about New Orleans and what they've been able to do this offseason. Um, and some of your best free agency moves, uh, you know, were in the Big Easy. So tell me, what, what was it about New Orleans' moves that you found so attractive over the offseason? Yeah, I think New Orleans thus far in terms of teams that have, have you know, succeeded uh, in the offseason, I think they've been hitting home run after home run. Not only did they bring – Andrus beat back for, for five years, 57 million when, when he could be making, I believe more on an average per year basis to, to solidify that O-line, but they bring in Emmanuel Sanders who yes, is uh, certainly on the back nine of his career, but it's still producing at a really high level. They bring him in for a pretty affordable price of, of two years, 16 million, you know, an average of 80 a year. And now you finally have that number two for, for Michael Thomas. And, and we saw that, that Emmanuel Sanders was able to, be a competent number one in San Francisco. And now you bring him in as the number two to Michael Thomas. I don't know what defensive coordinators are going to do 
you know, you put a number one uh, cornerback on, on Thomas, I think defenses are going to struggle having, you know, relying on a number two corner to cover someone with, with Emmanuel Sanders capability. Yeah, I, I agree that the, the Saints are another one of those teams that you can highlight as big winners coming out of free agency. Uh, yeah, Sanders, obviously a huge addition for them. Teaming him with Michael Thomas is going to be one of the more dynamic wide receiver duos in the league, if not one of the top ones, right? Obviously, there's going to be a lot of um, a lot of points scored with that offense. Um, Pete, of course, being a huge deal, right? Uh, bringing him back and giving some protection for the quarterback. But I think, I think the underrated move is uh, re-signing Drew Brees, right? Bringing him back. Um, listen, he's 41 years old. You talk about Sanders being on the back nine of his career. Uh, you know, Brees might be circling hole 18 at this point, but he is, he is still one of the top quarterbacks in the league. He is beloved by the people of New Orleans. Um, he is bringing him back and keeping, keeping the band together uh, in that sense is going gonna, is gonna to be amazing for New Orleans. And I think, I think Drew Brees at least has two or three good years left in him. Yeah, he'll probably decline a little bit. You can see it a little bit this year uh, or in this past season. And he, he dropped off a little bit with the arm strength, but if he can still make those precision throws, there's no stopping this New Orleans offense. So there's been a lot of talk, obviously, about Tom Brady. Um, and I want to stay away from that for just a moment um, and talk a little bit more broadly about the NFC South, where we are right now. We obviously have three new quarterback contracts, right? Two new quarterbacks, uh, one new contract, right? In terms of Carolina with Teddy Bridgewater, the Saints with Drew Brees, and of course, the Buccaneers with Tom Brady. I want to hear, Nick, starting with you first, who do we think is going to be most successful this year in that division? Um, and how far do we see that team going? Of those three quarterbacks, uh, it's got to be Drew Brees, uh, just because he know he's the one who's not transitioning to a different offense, right? It, Drew Brees is the New Orleans Saints, in my opinion, are going to be the team to beat in the NFC South. Uh, I would put Tom Brady and the and the Bucks right behind them, uh, simply because of the the arsenal of weapons at Brady's disposal. Um, and then you probably have the Panthers after that, right? Bridgewater, I think, is a very good quarterback. I think he's a competent quarterback. I definitely see. Um, the North, the Saints coming out of coming out of the South. I don't see any reason to suggest why they would take a drastic step backwards. And I think you know Breeze knowing that offense is is going to benefit them going into 2020. Yeah, I mean when you're looking at those four teams, I think there's no question you're talking New Orleans or Tampa in terms of who's going to come out of the division. You know, Atlanta just has not put it all together. Doesn't quite have the same uh, firepower on defense. That, that certainly the Bucs do, and, and even the Saints, the Panthers are rebuilding. But I think you, you're pairing Tom Brady with Bruce Arians, and that's, that's a, a gung-ho, sling it, all the way downfield type, of, type of, of coach on the offensive side. And so I think when we're talking you know, individual quarterback success and maybe even wins, I'm going with Tampa and, and with Brady because that Tampa defense last year was, was I think, even top, top five, certainly top ten. And you're pairing Brady – with two premier receivers in Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. We saw what they did the, uh, you know, last, last season with, with the Jameis Winston, who was more often throwing to the other team than his own. And, and so I'm seeing Brady as, as, as the cream of the crop, that Tampa Bay offense as the cream of the crop of that, of that division, certainly because the Bucs also are going to be relying on the passing game a lot more. You have Alvin Kamara and, and Latavius Murray in New Orleans. The Bucks still have to figure out their running game. So I'm thinking that it's going to be that, that Tampa Bay offense that's especially the Tampa Bay passing game that's the one to beat. I don't, I don't think there's any uh, debating whether or not the, the Bucks are going to have a, uh, an offense that is 
uh, borderline legendary based on the weapons that they have in Tom Brady. But if you look at it, I, if you watch both Breeze and Brady over the 2019 season, it almost looked as though Brady took a, a, a larger step backwards than Drew Brees did. Um, and I think there's going to be a little bit more of a, a learning curve for Brady. Yes, Bruce Arians is a mastermind. He's got the weapons. Uh, but, you know, it's going to take a few games for them to kind of to, – to, you know, hit full stride in the season. So, and I don't see that same kind of learning curve with, with Breeze and the Saints because they've done this before. They haven't, yes, Sanders might need a few games to catch up, but if Sanders is at least out there distracting somebody, Michael Thomas can continue to do everything he needs to do, right? Alvin Kamara can do everything he needs to do, right? I don't, I don't see the, I don't see the Bucks. I see the Bucks stumbling a tiny bit in the beginning. Obviously they're going to hit their stride, uh, but I definitely don't, I, I think the Saints are the team to beat in the South. Oh, come on, Nick. You're worrying, you're worrying about a learning curve with Tom Brady, the guy who puts in all the hours all the time. And, and, the, guy who played, and the guy who played for the same exact system for his entire career. He's not used to new things. He's right? got nothing else to do right now in his quarantine but study the offense. I think, I think Tom Brady and the Bucks hit the ground running. I'm not worried about that offense. Week one or week 17, I think they'll be playing at full steam. And with Bruce Arians, Evans, Godwin, Brady, I think Brady might go 5,000 yards again. I, I Honestly, I could see it. I, I think that is a – oh, my goodness. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think he's going to go over 5,000 yards because I don't, I don't know if he's got it still left in that arm of his. <laughs> 5,000 yards, that's absurd. I, we'll, we'll see. I, I, think the, I think the way Arians throws the ball or the way Arians has his quarterback throw the ball downfield, the way that offense runs – Right now, their lack of a running game. I think it's going to be all on Brady. I think he's got the weapons to do it. I'm not saying New Orleans isn't going to make the playoffs. I think those two, I think it's going to be a heated race, possibly down to, to week 17, maybe even fighting for that, that you know, that loan uh, by, by um, uh, playoff by now, now that the new playoff schedule has been, has been ratified. So I, I think it's going to be a heated competition, but I think Brady and the Bucks, you know, TB to TB, I think that's what gets, you know, gets them out of the uh, – out of the NFC South. I think that's the top seed. So the NFC South is obviously a pretty competitive division. I want to start with you, Nick. Do we think that those two teams being Tampa Bay and New Orleans present sort of the cream of the crop in the NFC, or is there another division that stands out to you as being more competitive than the South? Well, in the South, it's those two teams. If we consider the entire NFC, um, you, you have to throw the NFC West out there. Uh, the NFC West has, uh, you know, arguably – I. If you put New Orleans as maybe the second best team in the NFC and you put the Bucks somewhere around that four or five-ish range, you've got to consider teams like the 49ers. You've got to consider teams like the Seahawks. You've got to consider teams like the Rams. I think the NFC South is a good division, but if we're talking ranking the divisions uh, one through eight, the NFC West is the best division in football. Uh, there's no reason to suggest that the 49ers take a drastic step backwards. Um, yeah, they lost a couple of players in free agency, but I don't see them taking a significant step back. And the Seahawks were, were just as good, just a hair off of the 49ers basically the entire year. And I think the Rams are going to have a bounce back season. You know, when it comes to division versus division, the West is by far uh, superior top to bottom to the NFC South. And, and I would say the best in football at this moment. Yeah, I could definitely see that NFC West division. I mean, potentially at at, at uh, with the extra wild cards team. I mean, it's it's very unlikely. But if, if any division were to were to throw in, 
you know, that extra wild card team, I think it would be the NFC West because you're right. The, the Rams and the Cardinals both at this point have, have the firepower to get there. Um, obviously a bunch of holes on, on both rosters and, and that Rams window does seem to be closing, um, you know, at, uh, at some sort of pace. Um, but uh, you're right. I think the West is, is, is the class of the NFC. Um, South probably not super far behind though, because the Falcons can be competitive. They have that veteran coach. They have Matt Ryan and weapons on offense. Um, and, and the Panthers, you know, signed Bridgewater and, and should be at least somewhat capable, but I agree. The West are definitely the class of that, of that conference. I'm just staying with you for a moment. What do we think is the weakest division, not just necessarily in the, in the NFC or AFC, but in the whole league? Yeah, I, I think, I think you're between, you're probably between two, two divisions. It's, I mean, it's either the AFC East or, or the NFC East. You have um, at least two rebuilding teams in both, you know, between, uh, the Giants and Redskins in, in the NFC and, and the Jets and Dolphins in the AFC. Uh, if I had to pick one, I'd, I'd go AFC East just because despite the fact that the Dolphins heavily loaded up in free agency and are, are, are about to do so in the draft as well, um, coming off a of five-win season, you know, nothing is promised. And the Jets certainly didn't look too good. And, and you know, who knows where the Patriots can be without Brady. So right now with the Bills being the strongest team in that division, I think that that says something. And I think they're the weakest in the, in the league, at least from a uh, – you know, an April standpoint. See, I'm not, I'm not as uh, down on the AFC East. I think as, as Justin is, I think, I think that a lot of the team, yes, you lose Tom Brady in the, in the AFC East, which obviously is going to hurt the Patriots, but we don't know how much that's going to hurt. We won't know until football starts getting played because until, until Belichick can prove that he, he, it was only Brady that was winning games out there. We can't discount the Patriots. I think the bills did a lot of really good things. Um, in last season, obviously, and I think they're going to have a good year uh, in 2020. But I think the Dolphins also made a lot of strides towards rebuilding that roster. So I don't know if I would put them at the at the worst division in the league, um, because I think you have two and a half teams almost uh, that could be very competitive in that division. Um, I want to throw out, and I'm, and I'm sure this is going to make someone upset. I want to throw out the AFC West. Okay, and I want to throw out the AFC West because they, we always talk about the East, right? We always talk about how the AFC East is one of those teams where Brady and the Patriots were just feasting on terrible competition. That's exactly what's going to happen in the AFC West. The Chiefs are just going to go 6-0 and against the Broncos, the Raiders, and the Chargers. All three of those teams are in some sort of flux. The Raiders seem to be unable to get their stuff together. Uh, the Chargers just lost uh, two big pieces uh, in free agency in Rivers and Melvin Gordon. And the Broncos, we listen, Drew Locke played well uh, at the end of the season last year, but we don't know if that's going to be sustained success. Um, so I think, I think you got to consider the AFC West towards the bottom of that. I agree the NFC East obviously has its issues. I agree the AFC East has its issues. Uh, but I think, I think you might want to look out West for one of the worst divisions in football because outside of the Chiefs, I don't see, especially we've been talking about the new playoff format, I don't see any of those suckers making the, making the playoffs, regardless of how expansive the playoffs uh, bracket is. So that's a bit of a, a, a Wild West take, if you will, there, because I, you know, I see the Broncos as a team – that, that could really surprise a lot of people, not, not just because of the way Drew Locke played, but, you know, you add Melvin Gordon to uh, a, a backfield that already has um, Philip Lindsay and, and, and Royce Freeman. So I think that that running game could be particularly strong um, so long as the offensive line holds up. And that's obviously a big caveat, but I, I think that so long as that offensive line holds up, that's a really strong and talented running game. 
you have Cortland, Cortland Sutton there in, in the passing game, and they're definitely in prime position to take another top receiver, of which there are many in this draft. So if Drew Locke makes strides, that offense, that offense can be scary. Um, probably not, you know, certainly not to the degree, degree of, of a Chiefs offense, um, but it's, it could certainly be giving some defensive coordinators some problems. And the defense certainly is no slouch. You know, you still have, have Von Miller there producing, and uh, I, they, uh, I think they kept around their, their top safety in, in, in Simmons. Um, so that, I think that team certainly is more complete than a lot of people realize and, and could surprise some people. The Chargers still have a talented roster. And, yeah, it's Tyrod Taylor at quarterback, and, and that's not a whole lot of exciting. But um, I think those, you have more complete teams there than you do in a division like the East. So I want to get a little bit more specific um, from division down to team. And Nick, I want to start with you. Um, there's been a lot of moves in free agency this year. Um, but what do we think in terms of on a team scale, um, who was the most improved over this offseason? I, I think there are two. Uh, I think, I think you got to look at the dolphins, right? Uh, when you consider the most improved team, the dolphins had a roster of, nobodies quite literally a bunch of nobodies they they shed every ounce of talent that wasn't injured uh in 2019 they got rid of everybody who was anybody um so their roster like when you consider just the fact that they brought in people who are more competent at playing football than the roster they put out there uh they have to be one of the more improved uh bringing in guys like byron joe's emmanuel agba uh kyle van noy even eric flowers who is you know kind of shedding that um, slowly shedding that bus label. I think, um, I think the Dolphins are uh, – listen, they're not going to win the AFC East, but when we consider the most improved teams in football, it has to be the Dolphins because they, they literally had nothing, and now they at least have something, right? And I think the Dolphins are going to be – are actually in a great position to, to surprise a lot of teams next year, especially – listen, they surprised everyone last year by winning more than one game. But I think this year they're going to – I think they could do better than people expect because – you bring in all those additions. Brian Flores seems to have a good handle on developing players and getting the best out of his players, um, regardless of what their talent level is. And then you add those three first-round picks that are coming in uh, in April in the draft. I think the Dolphins are going to be very, very good next year, at least you know on a comparative scale. They're not going to win the division by any means. They're not going to the Super Bowl. But I think, I think eight games uh, out of that, season you'd win eight games I think that's totally within reason I think a lot of it's to do with rebuilding that defense that uh, and the moves they made in free agency I I'm, I'm hesitant to say the Dolphins for for the obvious reason that spending big in free agency historically is not the way to improve your team um, obviously those are some pretty big and key additions you know you said with Byron Jones and and, and Kyle Van Noy and, and and the rest but until I see those additions meld on the field and until I see them gel and, and start to play at full capacity, I'm hesitant to call the Dolphins a most improved team. On paper, for sure. On the field, we'll see. I like either the Bills or Saints for this pick. You know, we talked about the Saints already um, with, you know, retaining Pete and then they brought in Emmanuel Sanders and we didn't even discuss it. They brought in Malcolm Jenkins to solidify that back end. So the Saints, I think, are going from great to fantastic um this season and again that's on paper but and we'll see you know if they can get over that that playoff curse so to speak that they've been under the past couple years but I also like the bills for this pick you know we talked about how they added we talked about how the the Texans made that trade uh to send um Hopkins to to Arizona and you see you saw the bills make almost an equally um an equally impactful move in bringing Diggs over 
from Minnesota. Josh Allen now has a bona fide number one receiver to pair with a John Brown and a Cole Beasley. That's a fantastic trio. And they made a bunch of additions on defense too in, in Mario Addison and, uh, and um, Josh Norman. We'll see how that pans out him moving um, to, uh, to a defensive coordinator. He knows well uh, in, in Sean McDermott, who's now the head coach in Buffalo. So I think the bills are going to be um, a really good team. So long as Josh Allen is able to, to take that next step um, into, into top tier franchise quarterback status. So I want to push back on the Bills just for a second. So listen, I, I think what the Bills did in bringing back Quentin Spain is actually one of the underrated moves because you bring back that whole offensive line. You obviously get um, consistency, which is the most important thing, especially for an offensive line. But what have historically been Josh, Josh Allen's biggest issues? Accuracy is, is definitely number one. Okay, accuracy is number one. I think it's widely agreed that accuracy is the problem when it comes to Allen. Um, listen, mobile guy, he's, got a, he, he's a big dude. He can run. Um, but when it comes to throwing the football, he is nowhere near the most accurate of quarterbacks, right? So I almost think that the, the Diggs move is actually a little bit overvalued, right? Because you're, Diggs is a great player. There's no questioning that. But I think you pair him with the inaccuracies of – Josh Allen, I think you have, I think you have more problems than you're solving with Diggs. I don't think, I don't think things are going to work out as beautifully as people expect them to. Obviously, like you said, it's, it all depends on meshing and it depends on if he can make that next step, but something about one of those things that you've seen time and time again in the NFL is you can fix footwork. You can, you can help with eyes, but accuracy is really, really hard to fix in the NFL. And I don't, I don't see, especially now that nobody can go outside and everyone's, I don't see, I don't see Josh Allen sitting in his house throwing balls at a target to get better, right? So I think this offseason is actually maybe slowing him down, which might make it harder for those new wide receiver weapons for Diggs and specifically to, to really make the impact that everyone expects him to make coming, coming over to Buffalo. No, but I think the accuracy was are blown out of proportion primarily from what everyone saw in, in 2018. In his rookie year, he was at, what, like 53% completion percentage, which is far below acceptable. In 2019, he was just at almost at 60. He was at, I think, 58.8, something like that. And his touchdown to interception ratio was far better than it was in his rookie year. He was protecting the ball. He was 20 touchdowns to, to nine interceptions. And, he, and, and what he really provides, what's special about what he's able to give to an offense, is that dual threat capability that we see in guys like Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray. And obviously, he's not quite as shifty given his size, but defenses have to, have to respect the fact that he could run. And that Buffalo running game was stellar last season. And I think it'll continue to do so, you know, to be that way in, in you know, next season. They have Devin Singletary, who flashed a lot of potential. And now with all of those receivers, I think part of the accuracy problems you may have been having last year was that there was no bona fide number one receiver where defenses had to shift all of the attention. So now you're going to have guys like John Brown and Cole Beasley in one-on-one -on -one situations, bigger windows. I think his accuracy numbers, you know, go up past that 60 mark. And, and I think he'll take that next step. But, but how far past that 60 mark, right? If he's sitting at 58, right. And he jumps to 61. I, I mean, that's not, that's not a big enough jump. Listen, if he jumps to 60, if he goes a 10% swing, that's a big deal. That's obviously some dramatic improvement. Good for him. Um, but listen, if he if he's bumping up against 60 and he just gets to 60, I don't know if that's anything to write home about. He was the lowest rated quarterback in terms of percentage rating of those that qualified. So, you know, I think, that, yes, I understand what you're saying, the transition from and rookie yet, to – And yet they were a playoff team. So they were? 
I'm not, I'm not debating that. And I'm not debating his athleticism. He is very obviously an athletic quarterback. I just think when we consider the best improved teams because of free agency, I think that when we put the, the product on the field, I think that the digs, the digs trade is, is a little bit overvalued now, and it won't be as productive as people expect it to be once we come to actual football. I want to transition to talk about a quarterback who is undisputedly not athletic, who is Phillip Rivers, obviously going to the Colts, um, which is certainly an exciting move, shaking things up uh, from what was San Diego and now Los Angeles. Justin, I want to start with you here. Um, you know, you have someone like an Andrew Luck who retires, then you have Jacoby Brissett, and now you have someone like Phillip Rivers down in Indianapolis. What do we think that does to the team obviously it's not a long-term solution um, at the quarterback position but is that an exciting move do we think what are your thoughts there you saw some fans in in indy react kind of negatively to the rivers move and i think that i think they're not really appreciating what they have there now rivers whether or not he makes it to the hall of fame is is a debate that's sprung up recently and i think will continue long after he retires and i'm not sure he's quite hit that stature especially if he doesn't if he doesn't get himself a ring but Rivers is a quarterback who has been there, done that on good teams and bad, and has seemingly um, raised the talent and potential of the team time and time again with the Chargers. And yes, he is like we talked about with, you know, we talked about with Breeze and, and with Brady on that back nine, or, or as Nick said, circling hole 18 of his career. But I think what he brings to the field, both in, in leadership and arm talent and that sort of gunslinger mentality is going to be what the Colts didn't have last year in Brissett, who tended to more play it safe and, and take the underneath throws. And I think that's going to be what that offense needs to leap forward. And I think that the Colts can be one of those teams that surprises a lot of people, um, you know, coming out of the AFC South where there are two um, playoff contenders in, in Houston and, and Tennessee. I, I agree. Um, you know, I, I, I try not to agree with Justin just out of, you know, the, the purity of my soul. But um, I, I think that I think that bringing in Philip Rivers was such such a good move for the Colts. You know, listen, uh, you said it perfectly. He's he's at the back nine. He is he's coming around the bend. Um, he is not going to be playing quality football in within the next three or four years. Um, only got a little bit left in him. But, you know, I think the Colts are a, a, a really I think they're, especially when we consider the growing number of playoff teams I think the Colts could very easily slide in there even if uh the Texans and the Titans still duke it out for the number one spot in that division I, I think the Colts are you know they got a good defense they've got quality weapons on offense I think they need another I, they need another receiver um they definitely need someone else that he can that Rivers can throw to but I think Philip Rivers coming to Indy I think that's awesome and what it does too is it allows the Colts to get a quarterback a young quarterback in this draft that they can then develop behind one of the better quarterbacks we've seen in the last you know, decade or so. So I think, I think when you consider short-term and long-term effects of the river signing, I think it's actually a, a really big positive. I, again, the Colts, when I, when you asked me initially, Trevor, who the winners were, uh, the Colts were my other team, because I think that just bringing in that kind of guy to replace Jacoby Brissett, that's a, that's a game changing move. And I think a season changing move for the Colts. Yeah. And you hit the nail on the head with needing to add another receiver and, God, are they in prime position to do so, you know, after adding a Buckner in defense and Rivers on offense. Now you look at this draft class where they can take a, you know, a Jefferson, they could take a Lamb, they could take a Judy, whoever falls, because someone's going to fall with a class this deep and with teams prioritizing other positions like tackle and quarterback, they are in prime position to grab a receiver. And then you pair that person with T.Y. Hilton. So, you know, I, I, I personally like 
you know, at the position they're in, if, if Jefferson falls, I think he's a, you know, a guy to grab to, to, to be that next difference maker on offense. Uh, and if they do, uh, you know, with Marlon Mack in the backfield and, and, and River slinging those balls and T.Y. Hilton on the other side, it's another offense that could be quite scary. Right. When you, when you think about gunslinger and who's just going to throw it up and just hope the other guy runs fast enough to catch the ball before the DBs get there, there's probably none better than T.Y. Hilton, especially over the course of his career. Obviously, he's slowing down a little bit. He's getting older, but, you know, he's still an explosive guy. Uh, and, again, need a receiver. But you, you also touched on something else, bringing into Forrest Buckner. Like, that defense was already good. Right. So that defense went from good to potentially great with one guy, with one guy who is a one of those stud kind of players. So I, I wouldn't be surprised. I, and I'm not I'm not saying I'm calling it, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if you see the Colts competing at the top of that division and potentially taking that division, um, considering the the state of flux that the Texans always keep, seem to be in. And we don't know if the Titans will duplicate that magical season they had last year. I hope they do for, you know, the sake of the players that are down there. But um, I w- it wouldn't shock me if the Colts win that division in 2020. So there's still a number of players that are, you know, sort of left in that free agency pool. Uh, Nick, I want to start with you on the defensive side of the ball. Who are you looking at as the biggest difference maker that's still left? Obviously, Jadavian Clowney is the name that jumps out to you, and that may very well be your answer there. Um, who do we think is the most exciting talent that's left to add uh, to an NFL roster? Exciting talent has to be Clowney, right? He's a guy who is, uh, he's a quality player. He's young. He's only 27 years old. Um, he, yeah, listen, he's, uh, he's, he's got his issues, right? His sack numbers are obviously not as high as you want them to be for a quality guy um, uh, that would demand the kind of money that he's going to be demanding. Uh, and that's part of the reason why he probably hasn't signed yet is his numbers don't, aren't in line with the quality uh, with the pay that he ultimately wants. Uh, but Clowney's the most exciting guy still left. Um, I think, you know, when it co- he, can, he can help. He can help a team, any team. He can really, really assist them in, in, on the defensive side of the ball, just about any team in the league. Obviously, he'll have to move around depending on schematic fits, but I, I, think, I think he's by far the most exciting that remains. Yeah, I think the easy pick here, um, you know, aside, aside from Clowney, would be a, like a Cam Newton. But honestly – I'm not so sure Cam is going to make that big an impact next season, you know, based on the quarterback situations around the league for starters. But even in terms of just his injury history and the way we've seen him play recently, I think his best years are behind him. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go with sort of a duo uh, veteran edge rushing uh, pair here in Everson Griffin and, and Cam Wake. I think Griffin obviously being the much younger player might even have more to add, but he came off just, just, uh, just last year, a really solid season with the Vikings. And, you know, for a number of reasons, like, like cap and roster, uh, you know, the seat of the roster, they, they let him go. But I think he could be um, a, you know, eight to 10 sack player um, on a contending team somewhere. And, and Wake, unfortunately, last season was derailed with injury. But time and time again, we've seen him, you know, um, we've seen him overcome plenty of obstacles like injury and, and his, uh, his growing age. So I think that, you know, that duo there, Definitely should be considered by a contending team who needs just one or two more pieces in terms of pass rush uh, on the edge to contend. I agree. I think Wake and Griffin are both. Uh, I don't know if they're uh, they're going to start every snap, play every snap, start every game, but they are definitely some rotational guys that can help. And you, and you bring up Cam Newton. Um, Cam Newton, I think, is one of the more interesting scenarios in all of this. Um, you know, when he's on the field, there is no denying his talent. 
Um, the problem is that he, he had a lot of injuries recently and he's getting older. Um, and he is one of those quarterbacks that gets himself into a lot of trouble physically. He gets hit a lot because he's one of those running type quarterbacks, right? He's always on the field, but I think, you know, if you put him in the right situation, Cam Newton, I think could still do some pretty good things. I don't know if he's going to be, um, you know, MVP style, uh, when you consider numbers that are more than likely going to be put up by guys like Breeze and Brady in this, in the next season, but you put him with the right team. I think, I think Cam Newton could still, could still make an impact, uh, out there in the NFL. I mean, he'd have to have a perfectly tailored system and a coach is willing to build around him, kind of like the way you've seen Harbaugh build around um, Lamar Jackson, just because, you know, for him to, you know, as a quarterback who's never been the most accurate or never been the best at those touch underneath throws, you know, Cam needs to have the perfect type of receiving core and offense built around him to let him use his legs. And then you have to pray that when he does, he doesn't get hurt. Um, which is why I, I really think teams are going to be cautious, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's not signed until after the draft and, and potentially into training camp if that happens to happen with this, you know, the upcoming calendar uh, situation. So I want to transition into that topic, um, or if, Nick, you want to get a closing word. No, I just, I just you know, very quickly, I mean, I don't, I don't see him not having a job until uh, training camp. Uh, listen, he, he goes to the right situation. What if he goes to New England? What if he's the, the guy who replaces Tom Brady? That's probably – if he goes to New England, there's, there's – you know, the Patriots just jump up that ranking pool, right? Because they already have uh, a quality coach, right, which is arguably the most important aspect of all of this is having the guy who can bring out the best in your players. And, and Bill Belichick will be able to figure out a way to – to, to bring out the best and bring out, bring back the magic for Cam Newton. So if he goes to, if he goes to new England, I think, I think they're going to be a team to watch out for. Sorry. I didn't want to, to no, no, it's all good. I want to, Justin was just mentioning about, you know, one of the most exciting times in the football season is not even during the regular season or uh, postseason. It's the 2020 April draft. Um, but it's a little bit different this year as with most everything in sports, it's been, challenging uh, logistically to figure out exactly if and how and when the draft can occur. Um, so Justin, I want to start with you. Do we think that the draft can be conducted in the current state of the world, the way it traditionally is, um, which is sort of a layup question, obviously, or do we think that modifications have to be made such that it can be conducted at the same time, or does it have to be postponed? What are your thoughts on the draft? Um, and is it fair to the players to keep it as is right now? Yeah, I mean, it's become pretty, pretty clear and evident by the way Goodell, Roger Goodell has, has spoken that the draft is going to stay where it is. And I think that, um, you know, it's obviously not uh, the most fair situation for, for players who can't show everything they could do on their pro day or in in-person meetings and interviews. But, um, and I'm going to credit here where, where, where I come up with this next idea, but, you know, I was watching the Pat McAfee show um, just uh, in the past week or two. And uh, McAfee was talking about how this could actually be something that's unique and interesting and maybe even improvements for some television viewers. If, if you're getting, you know, those general managers and, and those scouts in, in the meeting room, you know, where they're all together, wherever they're able to meet in a sort of healthy, safe manner, and you put them all together and you have a camera on them the entire time because really there's not a whole lot else to watch, it's going to be pretty awesome or interesting, at least for the NFL fan, to be able to be sitting there and watching the craziness that goes on with the big board and the phone calls and the screaming and shouting and, and you know, uh, fist on the table for players and, uh, you know, scouts arguing for who they want. So I think this could be 
Um, obviously, it's an unfortunate set of circumstances and reason this is happening. But if it's done right, it could be quite the viewing experience for, for NFL fans. Yeah, you get all the GMs in one room. Uh, you get them with all their big boards. All you need, the only thing you need, uh, you need two things then. You need a ring and you need Rob Gronkowski to come in and host as if it was WrestleMania, right? Because that, that would be must-watch television um, for, <laughs> for everybody, especially because nothing else is going on. That would be one of the greatest things in the world. I would love to see these general managers go at it, but obviously that's not going to be the case. Uh, you know, listen, the, the NFL draft is, there's nothing we can do about the situation that we find ourselves in. Right. And, and, you know, the NFL is making a, um, I, I don't want to call it a smart move, but they're obviously aware of the situation knowing that if they pr- proceed with it, they're going to be the only thing that is talked about in the sports world. So they will get wall to wall coverage. Not like they didn't anyway, obviously when the draft happens, everything else um, basically shuts down. But when we, you know, the NFL is going to be the only thing that people are talking about. The draft is going to be talked about by every single talking head you could possibly imagine in the sporting world. So from a marketing perspective, it makes a lot of sense. I don't think it's really necessarily fair for the players. I think it's, um, you know, a lot of players, especially nowadays, they, they're working out They're They're having these, um, these meetings with the teams. You see a lot of players whose lives are changed because they, you know, they put the work in right now to move up the draft board. And it's really unfortunate. And I think it's not necessarily the fairest situation for those, those guys who are cusp draft players who need a good workout, need some face time. And, and now they don't, they don't have that opportunity. So, you know, from the NFL perspective is great because they're going to make a crap ton of money off it from the player perspective. I think it's unfortunate. I think that it's going to be one of those circumstances where I think as Nick and Justin both articulated, if it's played correctly, it can be a really, really interesting process, especially because the NFL has a totally captive audience. I mean, with everybody at home and the NFL being right now, the only sport that's really making any kind of major moves for the season. um, It could certainly be very interesting, even if unconventional. Um, I want to get into the draft a little bit. Um, And of course, we're going to talk about the most important position in all of American sports, which is the quarterback position. Uh, We've obviously got Joe Burrow and Tua Tagovailoa at the top of the QB board. Um, Nick, I want to start with you. Who do we think is going to trade up for a quarterback in this year's upcoming draft? Well, the Dolphins, uh, maybe. Uh, You know, it it really depends on how they're feeling about, uh, you know, the things that they're hearing. Uh, The Dolphins could, I could see them very easily um, moving up from five to a three, for example, in order to get uh, to a, um, I think, I think that would be a risky move. I don't think it would be the best move. Um, But I think you gotta, you gotta consider the Raiders as another opportunity. Uh, You know, before free agency, if you asked me who was going to trade up, I was going to say the Raiders because they obviously aren't sold on Derek Carr. You bring in Marcus Mariota over free agency period, it lowers those chances a little bit. But I just I don't see either of them being a long-term solution. And John Gruden, as, as fun as he is to watch on, on these, uh, these TV shows, and as awesome as it is to get him to, to you know interviewing and doing all these things, he needs to win. He signed a huge contract, and, and he needs to give these, these Vegas fans – uh, something, somebody to really rally behind. Something tells me that's not Carr. Something tells me that's not Mariota. It might be Tagovailoa, right? It might be Justin Herbert, but they're going to have to move to, to get Tag, Tagovailoa. The chance of getting Herbert maybe a little bit higher if they stay where they're at. I could see the Raiders moving up to get to get to him. I think that it's going to be uh, a team that hasn't been talked about nearly enough for quarterback trading up, and, and, and that's the Jaguars. I mean, 
you know, we're talking outside the Dolphins and Chargers, of course, who are in, in, in prime position to, to do so. But the Jaguars, who are a little further back, only have Mr. Minshew Mania at quarterback right now. You know, Foles is not there. Foles is up in Chicago. And so now you only have Gardner Minshew, a, a former late-round pick who was fine in flashes last year. Um, but that team is tearing down. They're rebuilding. And are they really going to now invest in a, a ground-up rebuild uh, with Gardner Minshew? I think you bring in a first-round rookie, and if Minshew, if, if it's Tagovailoa and he needs to sit, you have Minshew who plays. And if it's not, you have Minshew, and if he, if he competes and wins that starting job, then that's, that's great. You have two great quarterbacks to build with into the future. That's a good problem to have. And if not, then you have the first-round rookie to, to build around. But I think it's going to be the Jaguars who, who if, they can, if they could find a way with, you know, the picks they've received in, in the Jalen Ramsey trade and, and in the A.J. Boye trade to, to, to move up and, and, and grab that guy for their future. Yeah, but the, the Jags have a lot of other holes they have to fill. I think taking a, a first-round quarterback or, or compromising those, those draft picks to move up and get a, a quarterback like a Tagovailoa, I, I think is going to set them back more than anything, right? Because, listen, if they want to take a quarterback, you just said, they have Minshew. Obviously, he played okay. He was good. He, you know, obviously, he didn't, you know, break the door down. He, he's not going to be the next coming of Drew Brees, but uh, he, he's good enough for the time being. Maybe he takes another step moving into this next season. Wouldn't it be better then for the Jags to hang back and maybe get like a Jalen Hurts a little bit later? That way you got a guy who can develop and grow, but you're not risking that first round pick and others because you're obviously going to have to pay more to move up. You're, you're not risking that, those other picks to go and get a guy uh, when you might already have said guy. Yeah, but I don't like the same argument can be made for most teams at the top of the draft that they have plenty of other holes to fill. And with regards to, to, you know, their, their plans for rebuilding into the future, they traded out, they traded away Ramsey. They traded away Boye. They traded away Glaze Campbell. They're not winning anytime soon. It's not happening in Jacksonville and Duval. They're not making the playoffs. They're certainly not going on a Super Bowl run this year and probably not next year or the year after that. So I think if you have the ammunition now, which they do after that Ramsey trade, they have those couple first round picks. If they have, and this is the big caveat, of course, if they find the guy through this very strange pre-draft process that they say, this is my guy, this is who I want, you have a couple of teams there at the top of the, at the, top of the board, whether it be the Redskins, the Lions, or the Giants, who all for, you know, we assume for the time being, have their quarterbacks and who will probably be good candidates to trade back with. If they find their guy, if they believe Justin Herbert is the guy for the future, this is the time when you have those extra picks to make up and, you know, make that move. And then my final question of this week for pre-draft analysis is not related to the quarterback position. Um, do we have a standout player either on offense or defense um, who we think is going to make an impact right away on whatever team selects him? Justin, uh, you can go first on this one. Outside the quarterback position? Outside the quarterback position. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, the, the the answer to this is is definitely Chase Young. Um, I mean, he's he's everyone's um, darling of this draft class. But you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna stay away from that from that definite answer and go with I'm gonna go with Isaiah Simmons. I think what 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 he brings to the table for a defense, um, not only in the leadership and in the you know the the energy that he brought to the field for that that Clemson defense, but in that versatility, it's a very um, Minka Fitzpatrick, before he decided he didn't want to be versatile type role, 
where you can put him at linebacker, you could put him at safety, he can cover, he could chase side to sideline to sideline, um, chase down the run, he could even attack the quarterback. You place Isaiah Simmons on any defense with a coordinator who knows how to use him, and he will be your chess piece. He'll be your queen on the chessboard where he will make an impact wherever you place him. You stole my guy, Justin. Um, I, I love I love Isaiah Simmons. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think when it comes to versatility, he can do literally everything, right? Obviously, there's always a concern with guys, you know, these uh, jack-of-all-trade type players uh, because you don't know what they're actually good at. But I think Isaiah Simmons is a, a step above of every single one of them. Uh, I think he is going to be a stud um, in the NFL. He would definitely be right – for me, right behind Chase Young. But if I want to throw out another name out there, uh, I do like Jeff Okuda a lot too. Uh, I think he played really well um, in, at Ohio State for his entire time there. I think he's, uh, he, you know, he really did a good job. If you go back and watch that playoff game against Clemson, he did a really good job keeping up with T. Higgins. And we're talking about T. Higgins being one of the top receivers in this draft. I think Okuda could easily slot in, be your shutdown corner, and one half of the field is is now you can't throw there anymore because Okuda's out there roaming. I think Okuda is going to be a, a really good player in the NFL. Yeah, that's a stellar pick as well. And if you saw his combine video, did you see how his hips moved? That was a a work of art. Like his hips moved better than Shakira. That was that was <laughs> some scary mobility that I saw there. I don't think any receiver is going to be able to trip to trip him up. All right, gentlemen, we'll touch on this um, at a multitude of different points as the year progresses. But last final question, and I know it's super early and cliche, but Super Bowl picks 2021, if it's not Kansas City, who are we going with? Nick, I'll start with you. Oh, man, throwing us, throwing us for a loop to wrap Talk this about up. about way too <laughs> yeah, are early you kidding me? It's, not even, it's still a year away. Oh, my I, goodness. You know, just, let's just throw a name out just for the fun of it. Okay, just throwing a name out there. I'm not going to give just any analysis. Just throwing a name out. Just Your throwing a name out. Green Bay Packers, Aaron Rodgers brings home another ring. Wow. Oh, I love it. Too ask us again. Ask us again as we as – we, Oh, I promise. I promise we will for sure. That'll change. <laughs> Listen, guys, on behalf of Nick, Justin, and myself, we know there are a ton of news sources when it comes to getting all of your sports and football news. And we just want to thank you so much for choosing uh, to spend and share a little bit of your day with us. We'll see you on the next one. Thanks so much. Take care. Take care.